Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast, aimed at helping you live an active, healthy, and enjoyable life in and around Spokane, Washington. Brought to you by Gordon Physical Therapy. And now, here's your host, Dr. Luke Gordon. Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on today's episode of the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast. We got a great episode lined up today and I'm really excited for it. And one of the reasons I'm so excited for it is because just in leading up to this episode, I've learned so much about this aspect of the medical field that I really didn't know about. And I kind of feel a little bit reckless now or or just in the dark about this whole aspect of primary care. So my guest today is Matt Dinsmore. He is an ARNP, which if you're not familiar with that, that's an advanced registered nurse practitioner. So essentially he he can um, function as your primary uh, healthcare provider. The business is called Direct Primary Care, and it's an entirely different healthcare model versus uh, the typical model. I'm going to let Matt explain all those details here in just a minute, but I just wanted to start right off the bat saying this is going to be a really good episode, especially if you're of the mindset that the medical field in general could use some uh, rehaul or maybe some rehab, or maybe it could just be chucked in the bin and, and completely revamped. So Matt, first off, thank you for being on the show with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So again, we're talking about direct primary care, which is the name of your business. Uh, We're here on kind of the lower north side of Spokane talking. If you don't mind, before we tell folks exactly what that is and how it differs from the more conventional model, which we're going to refer to throughout the show as like fee for service model, why don't you just give us your background in terms of how you got into the medical field and what kind of started to push you in the direction you're in now? Gosh, okay. I, I guess the quick version is I grew up in Nine Mile Falls, kind of just uh, west of Spokane, and always kind of knew I wanted to get into something medical based on an aptitude test in high school. And so I eventually got my nursing degree and became a nurse practitioner, had a few jobs uh, with the VA, one treating peripheral neuropathy until I landed my dream job in my local community, being a family nurse practitioner in in our rural community, and did that for about four and a half years. And even though it was my my dream job, it came in with some high hopes that we could, you know, provide high quality care very personal care and in a, in a federally qualified health center, which is basically given government dollars to provide care in rural areas and to do it in a way that is supposed to be patient focused. And uh, what I began to notice is that um, there are some providers that like you talk to them individually, or if I ever consulted with them, they were really nice, very patient centered in their care approach. But then we'd have these uh, what we call med staff meetings. And there just was like this thick animosity that would come out of them. And they would, you know, the administration would speak. And then like, we literally had a provider leave uh, during one of the med staff meetings, just a really abrupt kind of in an angry titrate and then just left. And it was like, what is happening? I just, you know, never saw this before in this person or in these people. And I thought, okay, well, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's just something is broken and we need to be able to fix it. So I, I noticed during these med staff meetings that some providers were just really upset. And usually they would direct their anger at the administrative heads of the company and, you know, still being new to it, I didn't quite understand it. And I thought, well, you know, as I talked to them later about it, I thought, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're tired of having a ton of charts and checking boxes and not having enough time with patients, right? And I thought, okay, well, maybe we can fix this. Like, let's just increase efficiency. Let's take a look at our software. Let's look at processes and delegate appropriately. And maybe we can, you know, improve this situation through system fixes. Right. So I looked in like lean and Six Sigma and all this stuff and spent, I don't know, 18 months uh, working, um, trying to fix those things. What I realized is that any intervention or implementation that we did was not going to fix the problem because it turns out the root of the problem was insurance and the headaches that come with it, the regulatory um, hoops that we have to jump through in order to receive payment. 
And so I began to realize that whoever pays you is the person that you're responsible to provide care to, which is odd. It doesn't seem that when you go into medicine, but it's the truth. It's basically you, the patient, and their insurance company sitting in a room, and the insurance company says what you can and cannot do in regards to orders and tests and imaging. Not all of it's based on like, I don't know, like we just need to save money and deny every MRI that you place, but some of it is not based on clinical recommendations. And so I felt this like this bunch of turmoil inside. I was like, well, crap, I have 30 more years of my life like to spend in a in a in a clinic or an organization or trying to help people in a system that's broken. And it just felt you know, really disheartened for about 18 months. Uh, you know, seeking the Lord and I was praying about it and I just didn't know what I was gonna do. And I thought, okay, well, I'll open up my own business or clinic and and you know, we won't make a ton of money, but I'll be able to spend half an hour or 45 minutes with a patient if that's what it means, you know, and I can have control over the hours that we spend with patients. And I realized, nope, we wouldn't make money in that. There's there's not enough money in the insurance billing system because the overhead that would be required to see patients half an hour and 45 minutes at a time. You need to see them in 10 and 15 minute increments, uh, or you're not profitable. And so then I was back to my corner, sucking my thumb like super sad. (laughs) There's no solution. Yeah. And so then um, in my research, that's when I came across direct primary care and thought this could be a solution to our current broken system. Yeah. And I want to highlight something that that you said before we go on to discussing the difference between direct primary care and fee-for-service, which is what you were describing before. And you said basically, not only put words in your mouth here, but essentially with the typical medical model, the insurance company is your client, not your patient. I mean, is that accurate? I mean, could we could we say that? I think it is. I think now, admittedly, the patient is you. You treat the patient poorly, and they don't return, right? Sure, so then you sure. can't receive funds from the client. So you still have to treat the patient well. But I'm accountable to the insurance company in order to receive max maximum reimbursement. Uh, and so then my I'm incentivized to then follow the insurance regulations and not as much incentivized to provide good high quality care necessarily. Yeah. Now, obviously, as a provider with a good, you know, moral compass, yeah. you're obviously trying to provide the best care, yes. but also having to balance that between all of these hoops to jump through and regulatory things. And, right. And then, like you said, you get a, a staff meeting with someone maybe higher up in the company who says, well, by the way, Matt, we need you to bill like this mm-hmm. and we need you to do more of this and more of that. Right. So now you're having, again, the, the wrong incentives is I think the way I would look at it. The wrong incentives you know, to build certain things or right. anything. Yeah. Interesting. So why don't we just talk about then the basic difference between your model, which again, we're going to is direct primary care, which is what you found, um, and the model, the typical insurance model, which is fee for service. So do you want to just kind of explain the ins and outs of both? And Sure. So I think most of us are familiar with the fee for service system, which is basically you only, you only pay for the care that you receive, right? When you go in, you receive care and then you're charged or you pay for that care either by cash or insurance or whatever it is, right? That's typically how fee for service service works, the clinic gets money by seeing people. They have to see people in order to charge insurance companies. And so they're motivated to see people. In the direct primary care model, it's a, it's a membership model. So a person pays a monthly membership fee like they would a gym membership. And what that monthly fee guarantees them is access to a provider. So they can come in every day if they want or not come in that month. They're still billed that same monthly fee, but it guarantees them access and care and extended appointment times. And the model with direct primary care is we're not 
not necessarily incentivized to get people in our clinic door. We're incentivized to keep them well and to provide very convenient care while still being safe and accountable to the patient for high quality care. So then it begins to bring in some, I would say, advanced technologies and and utilization of technology through telemedicine services, which isn't as highly used, especially over a year ago in the fee-for-service world because they don't reimburse quite as well for that. So you're still taking 15 minutes of a provider's time, but you're getting 50% of it. And in fee-for-service world, you're not going to be prioritizing telemedicine care, even though it's convenient for the patient. You're going to be saying, we need to see you face-to-face. We can justify a higher billing charge. So, and then in the fee-for-service world, again, you're dealing with people who hopefully have a good moral and ethical compass, but they're not incentivized to keep you well, right? They need to see you in the clinic. They need to see you at least once a year for your annual well exam. And if you want to follow lab results, we need to see you in the clinic so we can charge for that time, reimburse for it. And am I really incentivized to spend a lot of time educating about conditions and illnesses and talk about nutrition, preventative care? Not necessarily. I mean, if you just look at it from a financial perspective, I'm not. I want you to come in again later, right? Now, again, you got to balance it out with the moral and ethical compass of providers, but it's a poorly aligned system, the fee-for-service, versus if you look at a membership model, which is encouraged and aligned to keep people as healthy as possible. Yeah, and I think that is the biggest uh, shift with your model is again, where are the incentives and do they align with the healthiest patients that you can have, Mm -hmm. the best outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. And that I think is just, it's, I mean, when you really stop to think about it and for the listeners, if you stop to think about it, it's like, that's the fundamental flaw with the system. And just to put it in perspective, I kind of joke with the therapists at the clinic, like the PTs, and I say, hey, I mean, your job is to get our clients better as quickly as possible, but don't get them better too quick, (laughs) right? Yeah. I mean, it's a real thing. Yeah. Because again, we only get paid for the work we do. Yeah. We don't get paid for keeping you out of the office. Mm -hmm. We get paid for keeping you in the office. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we joke around with clients because we work with mainly um, adults and older adults. It's yeah. like we tend to see them over and over throughout the years. You know, it's a knee today, it's a back tomorrow, but we certainly don't wish that upon them. Right. But at the same time, you have this weird kind of thing in the back of your mind. It's like, well, if they do need us, that's a good thing because then we can help them and then and then we can get paid and right. we can all have jobs. Yeah. Whereas if we did your model and we said, well, no, actually our goal, which aligns with their goals, by the way, is to need healthcare as little as possible. You know, again, you mentioned spending more time on patient education, more time on exercise, diet, nutrition, I imagine you get into things like stress management, Mm -hmm. you know, and things like that. Absolutely. And within your model, you have the appropriate amount of time to discuss more than one thing at once, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, Which for me, I think one of the biggest complaints I hear, and I don't know if you hear it as well, Matt, but it's, you know, I went to my doctor and- I, all I had was time for one thing, yeah. you know, but actually uh, I'm a whole human being and I had- <laughs> Turns two, out. Yeah, it turns yeah. out I have three things that are going on and they they could even be related, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's that time crunch and it's the insurance crunch. So yeah, I think yeah. if that's the one thing people take away from today is like just by changing the model itself, you can align the best interests of your clients with the best interests of your business. Right. You're not so focused on like productivity or, or driving through page, as many patients as you can, as fast as you can. So, you know, the common complaint in the fee-for-service world is one, I can't get in to see my provider because they're so booked up weeks out and I have a condition needs to be dressed now. I think I have shingles and I think I need something for it now. We can see in six weeks. Well, that doesn't work. So where do you go? You go to urgent care or emergent care by a provider that you've never seen before. And, uh, and then certainly there's more costs on the system as well as on the patient itself. And then the other complaint is, 
is that I don't get enough time with my provider. I don't feel well listened to. I feel like they're looking at the computer the whole time, and which is true. And the average appointment length for an actual provider with a patient is between nine and 11 minutes. And like you tell me that if you have a condition like fatigue or abdominal pain or even like headache, how are you supposed to eliminate the possibilities of abdominal pain within nine to 11 minutes. Clinically, it's nearly impossible. And so you miss things. And so there's a detriment to health that is being rolled out because we're not having adequate time with patients and there's actual harm being done. Patients are being hurt because we don't have adequate time to spend with people. And it can be like minute 45 that I'm with somebody that I realize, whoa, they just said something that was a really unique statement. And we didn't get to that until this point and I'm realizing it's not what I originally thought it was. It's not this chief complaint of right lower quadrant pain has morphed into something entirely different because they said something very subtly and now I'm on a different track entirely. And I can't tell you how many times that happens, or at least it adds something to the list that we should be aware of. And being in this model has made me aware of even the four and a half years I spent in the clinic of how many things did I miss? I I don't know. And I'm fearful to think how many things that I missed and made poor judgments on based on assumptions that had to be made too quickly. That makes a ton of sense. I didn't know there was an actual um, average time. I, I usually think of like 10 minutes in my yeah. mind, 15, but it's actually nine to 11 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so just to kind of jump ahead then in our um, in our agenda for today, an average appointment with you would be how long? Right now, I'd say it's about 45 minutes. Our new patients are at 90 minutes, but we don't always take all that. So I'd say 45 to an hour is about our average visit length. So a new patient, again, has 90 minutes with you. Yeah. That's unheard of. Mm-hmm. If I went and got a new provider today with standard, you know, like we said, fee-free schedule, I mean, what are we talking with them, 15 to 20? You'd be lucky to get 40 minutes. Sometimes okay. for a new patient exam, they'll extend, they'll have a longer visit, so they'll schedule it at 30 to 40, depending on the clinic you go to, and then established care visit is usually 15 to 20, depending on the clinic you go to. And then again, if they're on their computer half the time yeah. or they're checking the boxes, right? yeah, that's interesting. Another statement that you made that I want to touch on is that, I imagine most people have experienced this in life before, but when you're actually having a conversation with somebody about something important, yeah. how often the most important piece of information comes in the last five minutes of a one hour conversation mm-hmm. or a 45 minute conversation. And um, that I think is worth just remembering too. Um, so I have a business coach who helps me become you know, a better physical therapist, business owner, yeah. essentially, yeah. Um, which benefits you know, my staff, our clients, the whole system benefits from this. So he said that on numbers, I mean, numerous occasions, you know, when, when you have the opportunity to talk through a problem, especially not just with him, but with a group of like-minded individuals, that last 10 minutes, like hang in there yeah. because you got to cut through all the surface level questions. Again, all of your previous assumptions based on your experience, what this is 90% of the time. And then like you said, five minutes left to go and you realize that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, you get you get that insight. Yeah. So just to imagine that if you only have nine minutes or 10 minutes or 11, that that whole process is just not even existent, you know, a deeper level of healthcare. Fascinating. And you also mentioned um, this, you know, this is a, a great point. One of the things I wanted to ask you is what are these pain points for clients where they would seek an alternative model? And you already mentioned one, um, I've got an issue today. Um, it wasn't here yesterday and I need someone to check it out. When can I get in to see you? That's a major issue, right? For the average person. Yeah, so access is a huge you know, benefit of direct primary care and is also uh, the Achilles heel of the fee-for-service 
world. And so when somebody is needing, is tired of not having adequate access, they might have great insurance coverage, but coverage doesn't guarantee care and it doesn't guarantee access, which is strange to think about, but it's true. And so direct primary care kind of gives the peace of mind that if something comes up, you know, we offer same day to next day availabilities. So um, if they can't be seen today between, you know, the next couple hours before the end of the day, we will be able to see them tomorrow. Um, So I think that's a pain point there. And then I think quality of care. Some people have come to the conclusion, maybe have received enough healthcare, they realize that they're they're tired of those short appointments and only bring up one thing at a time, or they're dealing with a really complicated condition that needs, and they're tired of going through the, the mill of specialists, which so commonly primary care will do. Oh, you have a heart condition, go see a cardiologist. You have a lung condition, see a pulmonologist. And the time between that referral and them seeing the specialist is like six months. And that's not an exaggeration depending on the specialist. But it's like, that's that's now what primary care has become is we become like the referral specialist. We just refer, it's a bone. We, we verify it's a bone condition. You must need to see an orthopedic specialist. When it's like a majority of care could be addressed by a primary care physician if they had adequate time uh, and the resources to do so. And so we rival and feel p- privileged that we can actually sit down with the patient and address three or four things at a time and wonder if they're not all connected and then discuss different options and not feeling rushed. And I think patients finally feel heard and understood and on a reasonable treatment path when maybe they feel like all they've done is gone around circles and not finding any answers. You know, you have to be your own advocate in this healthcare system. And it's way harder when you don't have a medical advocate walking side by side People can do it and they have done it, but it's much easier and more appropriate if a medical provider is walking there with you and saying, you know, what are your goals? Okay, where do, here's some possible next steps. What do you want to do? And you just feel like somebody's in it with you. And, and we just, I feel like primary care should be that. Your primary care provider should be that family town doctor that is like, feels they're in the ring with you, you know, and we, we've just, we've lost that. And I think that's terribly sad. Yeah. Another great point, Matt. I think a lot of people probably resonate with that, like, the, the primary care is just the referral orchestrator at this point, a yeah. lot of times. Um, and if you read older books, I mean, I remember reading, um, have you ever read the power of positive thinking by Norman Vincent Peale? No, I haven't. Yeah. He wrote it back. He was a, he was a medical doctor. He wrote back, I think in the sixties and I like reading positive energy books sometimes to help you keep a good focus. And, mm-hmm. um, but he was talking about, you know, back in the day as a physician client would come in and they would have high blood pressure or they'd have this other issue. And nowadays you think, oh, if you have high blood pressure and you go see your provider, they're gonna give you um, some type of medication. And maybe if it looks more serious, they're gonna send you to a cardiologist. They're gonna refer you. And that's gonna take 10 minutes. You told me you got a problem. I have the solution, medication, referral. But back then what Norman Vincent Peale described in the course of the book, which this wasn't the purpose of the book, but this is what I gleaned from it. And so I, you know, he's talking to his client, like his client is his friend. And he's saying, well, hey, I'll tell you why your blood pressure is high. How much are you working? And the guy's stressed at work. You know, have you gained some weight? Yep. Are you exercising? No. Are you getting outside? How's your relationship with your wife? And so it just gave me this insight to like back, let's say in the 60s, that was to some extent how medicine was. Like they were there to figure you out and to sometimes just to be honest with you and tell you, well, look, I'm not going to fix this problem for you. You're the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's get down to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is you're overly stressed and you're not spending your time wisely. Right. So that to me was powerful in addition to the rest of the book. But I think a lot of people do get frustrated saying, well, I went to the doctor and they didn't know what was wrong with me. And they just sent me to the specialist. Like you said, maybe I can get into the specialist three, four months, six months. One specialist tends to lead to another. Oh, it wasn't a heart condition. What does that tell us? Doesn't tell us anything. We narrowed it down to 15 things. We, we knocked one off the list. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's a great pain point. And I think for those listeners, you know, is that the issue potentially is not necessarily, I hesitate to like blame the physicians because I think 
like we've talked about, they're good people. They've got good training, their heart's in the right place, mm-hmm. but the system isn't geared for them to be successful. Right. And you know, one of the things you and I talked about preparing for the show was just that that idea of like provider burnout, you know, and I can only imagine if you're a provider having to get to a client every 15 minutes of your day and just knocking them down, man. I yeah. mean, do you hear about that kind of thing from fellow providers at all or? Yeah, it is a plague, which is probably, I don't know if that's an appropriate word to use uh, during this time or not, but it is uh, provider burnout is is a real thing. In fact, uh, the medical system has the highest suicide rate than in any other industry, uh, which is shocking if you think about it. But in primary care, all the more so, unfortunately. And there's a term I've heard a provider use, and they use a term called moral injury. So it's not provider burnout, it's moral injury. And, and so at the basis of the statement, basically he's saying burnout seems like, oh, you're just overworked, right? Which is true. But he's saying it's more than that. It's deeper than that. You don't take a provider who spent their 20s working 60, 80 hours a week in a, you know, medical doctors when they're doing their residency or something like that. And then say they get in their field in primary care and now they're burning out. Like he's like, no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is you are taking people, especially in like rural healthcare, where they're, they want to invest in people's lives. Like they're, they're relational people and they want to help them get better and be the partner in healthcare. And then you take these ideologies and, and these uh, people who, who want to do good. And then you put them into this system where you make it impossible to do that, but just enough, they feel like they might be helping just enough, but not quite really fulfilling what they feel like their life's purpose is. And, uh, and, you know, you talk to providers, they're extremely missional people. Like how many providers, you know, are working beyond 65? Like I know several family practice docs that just will not retire because it's not about a job to them. It's their mission. It's like their identity, you know, yeah. they're getting bad of it. And so you put them in the system where they can't do that and it just crushes them. And, and from, I, I just saw several providers being crushed in the system and it was just sad. And it's like, I don't know, they just turn into bitter people and it begins affecting their care. And it's just like this really sad outcome. And I feel like if you took those same providers and you put them in a scenario where they actually could fulfill their purpose, they'd be entirely different people. Well, I can imagine similar to your story when you first come into a medical field. And I think, you know, a lot of us come out of school and we're kind of, you know, we're young, we're full of energy. The world has infinite possibilities. And if you see a problem with the system, you know, I think you're naive enough at that point to think that you can be you can be the solution. It's like, well, no, I'll just try harder and I'll be more positive and I'll spend the extra time with my clients. Kind of like how you described. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, fine. I mean, but it it won't work. Like it just won't work within a system. Unless of course, you know, you want to make half your salary, in which case you can't, you know, not to go too down that you sure. know, down that road, but then you can't yeah. pay back your student loans. You right. can't pay for your mortgage. Your kids, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a it's a flaw in the system, like we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. So another topic I wanted to discuss along the lines of pain points is what about these folks that healthcare in general is just too expensive to some extent? Is that someone who's attracted to your to your um, practice as well? Who says, look, I can get healthcare over here, but I really can't afford it, or I have, like you said, I have coverage, but I can't afford the care within that because of like a high deductible, sure. massive co-pays. I mean, um, could you talk a little bit about how common that is in the marketplace as well? Yes, yeah, so there's a couple different perspectives there. And and we feel like, uh, you know, your primary care provider should also not, not only be your medical advocate, but should be your financial advocate through the system. Because who really should know the system better and the opportunities within your community than your primary care 
provider who's serving that community. So for like somebody who doesn't have insurance, direct primary care at $49 per month monthly membership fee will give them 89% of the care they'll need in their lifetime for that monthly fee. In addition to that, they get to enjoy the discounts that we've arranged for them, which is like 80 to 90% off labs. Whereas if they didn't have our membership, they'd be billed $250 for normal screening labs. Through our discounts, like 25 bucks. And that is not an exaggeration. And we can get medications in stock, generic meds for at cost. So we had one lady just filled a med today. She <laughs> she's going to spend $150 and the pharmacy gave her a discount. So we got this $100 discount. You don't have to spend $50. Here's 30 of them. We can get that same med, 90 tablets of it for $3. It's just a racket. Like, oh, thank you for that $100 discount. And I know they're getting that med for $2.15 or something like that. 90 days worth. So for 30 days worth, she's spending 50 bucks for it. And I was like, no, <laughs> dang it. And so there's all these opportunities in which you can be fleeced in the medical system. And there's opportunities in which you can save money. So they get to that discount. We've also arranged x-ray imaging for a flat fee of $55. Uh, and, and these aren't profit endeavors for it. We don't get money off the labs. We don't get money off the medications. We don't get money off the x-rays. We just, the only thing we earn a profit on is a monthly membership fee. The rest, anytime we get a discount or some saving, we pass it on to our patients because we believe in price transparency. So again, we try to do all we can. Urgent care, we suture people up. We do EKGs. We take off moles, like, and there's no charge for that. And any procedure we do in office, there's no additional charge that's included in the monthly membership fee. And uh, if they have to navigate the healthcare system outside of our clinic and they're like, oh, well, you might be, uh, you, you might have to pay for that MRI or that, uh, to, you have to see a cardiologist. You got a condition that we can't address. You know, we will help them walk through the local financial assistance programs that are there's a few that are several, very generous and even preventative screening. Uh, we can get like mammograms for free for some people and pelvic exams for free for some people. I mean, it's like there's some resources locally that the average, I mean, we didn't find these resources until after a year we were into it. And so to sit, think somebody's going to find it in two weeks of searching is just, you know, is ridiculous. But so that's for somebody who doesn't have insurance. And not, we don't recommend that nobody has a major medical solution, but there's more than one way to skin the cat in regards to affordable health care. And so whether you're an employer or or you don't qualify for subsidies to the state and you're spending a lot of money on health insurance, you, know, you can get a cost sharing membership where it's like this group that shares one another medical bills for about 50% less than health insurance. And they will pretty much help you pay for any cost, medical cost that's beyond $2,000 or $1,000 or $500, whatever you choose. You're going to spend a little more per month, but the per month payment is 50% of what it costs to get through the exchange. Now, what they don't cover those cost sharing networks, they don't cover primary care. They don't cover um, urgent care generally because those are less than $2,000 worth of expenses. So some people have made a decision to add on direct primary care for an additional 50 bucks. And now they get this, I mean, I'm biased, but this wonderful healthcare solution <laughs> yeah. where they have the peace of mind that if they broke their leg and they needed surgery, well, phew, I'm not going to pay more than 500 bucks for that. But if I have like the sniffles or I cut myself and I need sutures, I'm not going to have to go to the ER and pay $2,000 for that. I'm going to go to Matt and get sutured up and that cost me 50 bucks that month. You know, So there's, there's different ways to navigate the system system. And we feel like it's our responsibility to help people. And we're not financially incentivized in any way to recommend one cost sharing network over another or recommend one hospital clinic or organization over another. Yeah. We're, you know, I'm not a big corporate organization. I'm not part of an entity where I want to refer to that specialty within that same organization. I just want to send them to the most cost effective and best provider. 
And yeah. so here it is. Well, and that's something that wasn't, I don't think, quite on my agenda, but I think it's a it's an excellent point is that one of, if you want to poke holes in our medical system, one of the problems is the financial incentives for referrals. Mm-hmm. You look at a, a, a network, um, a network like we have two major ones in Spokane who we mm-hmm. don't have to name because people should already know what they are. Yeah. But you have your primary care within the network. Well, if you need imaging, who are they going to send you to? They're imaging. If you need physical therapy, who are they going to send you to? Their physical therapy. If you need uh, cardiology. So again, are they they referring you for the right reasons or are there financial incentives that are are masking them? And I think um, as a small business owner, to me, competition is a good thing. Yeah. Like I want you to refer your clients to me for their PT needs because we're the best option. Right. And if we're not the best option or we goof up, I want to know because mm-hmm. I don't want it to happen again, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's, you know, one of the advantages nowadays of like social proof and, um, you know, online reviews and stuff, mm-hmm. you can say, okay, well, who actually is doing, who sure. do people really like and who do they talk well about? And, you know, you, you can be your own advocate, but I think that's huge, 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 huge. Maybe the, one of the biggest points we've made today is just that you're not just a medical advocate for your clients. You actually help them navigate the system yeah. because for you to become an expert in finding these discounts, negotiating these discounts, all these things, which again, don't benefit you directly uh, financially, but for you, that's an ongoing process. And for someone like me, who yesterday didn't have a need, but today I broke my leg and I need surgery. Am I supposed to figure that out in the next 30 minutes, you know, <laughs> yeah. on a Google search? <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah. My um, leg's pointing the wrong way. I kind of want to address that. Yeah. Well, give me a couple weeks, you know? <laughs> no, that's when you just sign up with Matt that day, right? Yeah. You know, I'm just kidding. Sure, hey. <laughs> we would accept it. Don't wait that long. Um, I want to do a quick plug for your website too before I forget, um, because a lot of the stuff that you just mentioned with your membership model in terms of, hey, here's the things that are, covered. Here's the things, how we help you save money. You mentioned 80 to 90% uh, off labs. And you had that crazy comment that you made about generic meds for $3 versus what was originally $150 at the pharmacy. And then they gave you a hundred bucks off because that's a great deal to get yeah. that generic medication for 50 bucks. You feel all warm inside. That's a oh, hell of a deal. <laughs> and then they came to you and it was $3. Yeah. That's insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, for those people listening, if that doesn't give you an idea of the scope of the problem in our country, I don't know what will. Knowing that you could take a $2 medication and to some people, depending on their coverage, you could sell that to their insurance company for $150. Wow. I mean, I, I've said this before, but if that's the case, I'm in the wrong field. You know what I mean? Well, I'm not in the wrong field. I love my field. Yeah, sure. And, <laughs> and I don't want to market my therapy services 3,000%. <laughs> sure. Um, but man- just crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay, so um, quick plug then for your website. I know your website has a really good like list of how the membership works. Yeah. Um, can you just give me the URL right now? Yeah, so www, and it's mydpcclinic.com. You got two Cs in a row yep. there, mm-hmm. .com. And for those listeners, of course, I always put the links in the show notes and stuff. Okay. Okay. But you know, as you're listening along, if you want to pull up that website, again, my DPC, which is direct primary Claire or Claire. That's my wife's name. Uh, <laughs> hi, hon. Hi, babe. If you listen to our uh, podcast, <laughs> dpcclinic.com. Awesome. Let's talk about too, then that, that detail that we kind of talked about as, um, what do you recommend your clients carry for coverage then? Because you've got the direct primary stuff nailed. You're helping them with all those things that reduce costs. So that's all awesome. Like you mentioned, you essentially replace the majority of any needed 
ER urgent care visits, which is awesome. Yeah. But then something major does happen mm -hmm. that would potentially be a thirty thousand dollar price tag, you sure. know, going through your insurance. So what do you? How do you recommend uh, clients balance out and prepare for those circumstances? So it depends. You know, just like a financial advisor would sit down with you and look at your specific scenario. So with health insurance, should somebody sit down with you and look at your specific scenario? So some people might. Uh, I would recommend one way over another, but I would say there's probably two, maybe three ways that I would recommend that I think, you know, admittedly work well for direct primary care, but I think work well as a strategy in general. So the first one is to seriously look into cost sharing and there's um, religiously affiliated ones and non-religiously affiliated ones, but they're a really reasonable approach in getting kind of those big bills covered and they're not limited by calendar year. So they don't, they're quote unquote deductible, you know, doesn't reset like normal insurance. You know, you break your leg in January, you're gonna pay that deductible again. And I'm sorry, in December, you're gonna pay that deductible again in January for the surgery where you paid for the deductible in December for the ER visit, you know, so you can get, you almost get a double whammy for the same condition. They look at just, it's one condition. And so long as it's related to that condition, you pay the first 2000 and it could go three, five years. Like I have one lady who's got, been dealing with uh, breast cancer for five years and she paid, $500 out of pocket initially and hasn't paid a dime since. And because she's continued to receive treatment, she's still alive and they've continued to cover those medical bills and they've never kicked her off and said, sorry, you're too sick. And we need to, you know, they've kept her on it and they've kept her word, their word. And she's had a great outcome with it. The only limitation with that, that I would, you know, caution the listeners is they don't accept pre-existing conditions. So if you went in with breast cancer, they would say, hey, this condition already existed before and you can't submit these bills to be shared. So if you go into cost sharing, you have to be cautious with any medical condition that's not managed by a primary care provider. Because those might be bills that you're going to pay out of pocket and it can be more expensive. So like if you go in with hypertension or diabetes or something, that's not a big deal in my opinion, because that's going to be managed by your primary care provider anyway. You're not going to be submitting those bills for the cost sharing network to pay anyway. But if you went in for a more serious condition and know, knew you had it, they'll say, hey, we can't, we won't be covering that. And so, so cost sharing, I think is really reasonable to look into because the monthly payment to be in that group is very low. And you're generally with like-minded people who have to sign a health statement. So the population itself, is healthier. So your monthly premium, if you will, is lower. So that's a really interesting strategy for me. And then the second thing for individuals would be to go a high deductible plan with a HSA in a health savings account. And so, you know, you, you pay less per month, but then you put tax-deferred dollars into this health savings account that can pay for medical bills. Especially if you're generally healthy, then you're going to save a lot more in the long run than if you pay for you know a Cadillac plan with a really high premium and a low deductible. So even in our clinic, people can use their HSA funds to pay for those labs that are 25 bucks. Whereas if they saw a regular primary care provider, they can use their HSA to pay for the insurance billing labs, but they're gonna be $250. Yeah. So you're actually still gonna, you can still Huge. use your great HSA, uh -huh. but you can use it for these discounted labs because it's still considered a medically that's, qualified expense. That's, in, yeah, that's incredible. Quick question too yeah. on HSA. Yeah. Could they use their HSA to pay for the monthly uh, fee to see you, or can they just use it for expenses after after they've paid their monthly fee for a direct primary care? Uh, so the quick answer is probably not. Um, there's some arguing against that, but there's also legislation actually in Congress right now that would allow HSAs to pay for the monthly membership fee. Okay, that's again just another incredible point that I think when when you and I were preparing for the show and, and talking just right now, I was like, there are so many things that didn't even occur to me. You know, if I've got a client 
who has some of these needs, you know, they're, they're chronic conditions. They're not happy with the the medical system. They feel like they're getting passed off to too many specialists. Yeah. It's getting too expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're getting frustrated. And then to say, well, here's a different route where you've got more time with someone who can spend on the medical end and then they can help you with the financial side too. Mm-hmm. So potentially, again, like you said, you're going to pay $250 for this service if it goes through your insurance, yeah. but we have a better contracted rate. So- yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's more I think it's more there's more of a creative component to this model than I think I uh, really understood at first. Yeah. It kind of seems like just medical and concierge care at first like yeah. oh, okay, well I don't see a lot of medical services. But it's much more than that. And really it's direct primary care isn't concierge medicine. It's a much more affordable rate and we don't bill insurance and uh we're we're greater advocates for not only their health but for their finances which is really needed nowadays. Yeah, I just think it's so it's so strange for me to think that your physician would know how to help you with the financial side of something. You know, it's usually what I think even as therapists, we're like, oh, we're just, the front desk handles that or you can talk to our biller yeah. um, because, you know, we have a contracted rate and you've got a deductible and you've got this and you've got that. And we really, and then of course, it's just like, we'll give you our best guess. Yeah. You know, if you uh, came into my office today <laughs> and you've got a $2,000 deductible and you said, well, okay, Luke, uh, how much is this physical therapy treatment going to cost me? I'd be like, you know what? That's a great question. And I can give you a range or I can ask the front desk and they'll give you a range. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier, like transparency with our costs would go a long way for people. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Sorry. So you were saying you're helping them with potentially a cost sharing option, yep. um, potentially a high deductible HSA. Mm-hmm. Was there one or two more things you wanted to mention there before I cut you off? Yeah, there's just there's just one. I think it probably applies some to employers in particular, but there's something called a level funded plan, which is, you know, for employers that are offering health insurance, typically they'll go what's called fully funded, which means they pay, you know, for an employee's premium or a portion of it, or, you know, 50% or 80%, they pay for the premium and all those premiums go to that insurance company to provide insurance, right? And at the end of the year, all that money went to the insurance company to provide insurance. But there's a, another plan called a level funded plan where you do the same thing. It's health insurance. You pay a monthly premium to provide health insurance to your employees. But at the end of the year, if you had a healthy year, the employer has an opportunity to get 40% of the premium back at the end of the year. So it's this rewarding system, better incentivized in my opinion, where now employers are playing a role wanting their employees to be as healthy as possible so they submit less medical claims, which means more opportunity to have a reimbursement in their premiums at the end of the year, which 40% of medical premiums can, can be a lot of money. So as an example, we have a construction company who's got 20 employees. They did a level funded plan and they're looking to get back $30,000 at the end of the year Uh, because they had a relatively healthy year. Whereas if they had a normal plan, that would have been the insurance company's money and they would have said, thank you. And it doesn't matter if you're healthy or not, you're not getting any money back. But at least in this level funded plan, you have a chance at getting money back. And we think where direct primary care plays a role is we never bill insurance for our services, right? Right. So the more services we provide to employees and the more times we keep them out of the medical system where they're going to submit medical claims that their insurance is going to see, the less opportunity that employer has at getting money back. So if we see them, those are all claims and care that the insurance company is blinded to and it's not hitting the employer's premium account, right? So it helps ensure the best chance at getting the maximum reimbursement, which for this construction company worked out 
exactly that way. That's fascinating. Again, it's something else that I'm completely oblivious to. I've never heard of a level funded plan. And as we're talking, we have 15 employees at the clinic and we're just renewing health insurance oh, right you now. So look into it. So I'm thinking, okay. I, you you know, have healthy employees. So I, I mean, know. they're physical therapists for crying out loud. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm preparing for this podcast and it's like, oh, well, this is great information for somebody else. Uh, and then, you know, um, anyhow, that's, yeah. Okay. So then the last thing I want to ask you financially, um, do catastrophic plans then fit in sometimes for your clients overall approach as well? Yeah, they can. I've heard, I've seen some really interesting mixes for catastrophic coverage, including like indemnity plans, which are like AFLAC, which they pay you. Like if you get an x-ray, they'll pay you 75 bucks or something like that. So I've heard some interesting combinations, including the major medical, uh, which I know the Trump administration helped push forward some additional options for that, but I think it's limited to one year. Okay. So um, I'm a little hesitant to recommend those uh, unless there's certain circumstances, like you need coverage for three or six months or something. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I think maybe the take home point is that, you know, your clients don't have to know all of these ins and outs because you're going to help them navigate it, give them their options and then figure out what's best for their you know, for their needs, which is huge. And I'm not an insurance broker, but we do consult with insurance brokers, with patients and say, okay, well, let's meet with this person who, you know, has a license to sell some of this stuff. And, and, but we know and trust and is familiar with all these plans, right? Talks about level funded plans to employers. Like why are brokers not talking about this, you know? And so we've found that there are some that are very familiar with all of these. And so we begin to recommend them and that, and they're incentivized in a better manner, we believe, than what the traditional system is. But that's probably a whole nother podcast. Sure. Yeah, I think that probably is. And I'm just kind of, yeah, getting lost in my own thoughts now about Mm -hmm. my staff and what we should do and things (laughs) like that. So I wanted to ask you too. So we mentioned some of the pain points for clients. Is there a certain type of client that will seek you out? I mean, we don't have to go over those pain points again, but I mean, I, I think potentially I might, I might look at your model and say, well, that's fine, Matt, but it will only work for healthy people. Yeah. Healthy people who are young, who don't need to spend any money anyways. I mean, hopefully that's a misconception that people have. Um, so how does that work out? Is your type of a setup potentially beneficial for just about everybody? Or are there certain people that are better fits for you than others? Well, I think you know if a negative aspect of direct primary care is I think there is this risk of providers only signing up healthy people and saying, well, you have too many chronic conditions. Like we're not going to sign you up because that's going to take too much time. And we're not really interested in making people better. We want just the healthy low apples, like from the tree, you know, exactly. You want the people who aren't going to come in already yeah, because that's better for you financially. There's a risk of that, right? So the state for seeing that made a law to say that Direct primary care clinics cannot reject people based on how healthy or unhealthy they are. We basically have to accept anyone who applies, so long as they're willing to pay the monthly membership fee and agree to the membership agreement, um, we cannot limit their access just based on how healthy or unhealthy they are. Now, missionally, we're in line to, we want to help those people because really the sickest people, older, young, are the ones who are being affected the most. It's the person who sprains their ankle and goes urgent care and doesn't have any other chronic conditions. They're not being hurt a ton by the medical system. So we feel like the most good that we can do in the system is probably with those who have who are going to utilize our services quite a bit. But that's okay. You know, that aligns with who we are missionally and it aligns with what the state would prefer. That's great to know. Because again, I think on paper, and if I didn't know you and what, you know, what your values were, I would say, well, that's that's a great model. Just cherry pick. Right. Like you said, the low-hanging fruit. We could use some fruit analogies on today's show. Yeah. Uh, cherry pick <laughs> um, and say, well, great. I want the folks who are going to 
who don't need much anyways. Yeah. Because then I can carry a higher client volume. Totally. Monthly membership fee is great. Awesome. And then in one particular crowd, I wanted to just kind of discuss a little bit is the Medicare crowd. And this was something we talked about before. And I said, well, hey, would people on Medicare potentially want to do direct primary care? And I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting little example. Do you want to kind of how explain how that, how actually if someone's listening and they have Medicare, how actually signing up for direct primary care would actually be a really nice combination potentially. Do you want to kind of explain that? With Medicare, you can have Medicare and sign up for direct primary care. We're still not going to bill Medicare for our services and you'll still pay the monthly membership fee for those services. But Medicare wants you have to sign a little form that basically says, I'm not going to turn around and bill this monthly membership fee to Medicare to reimburse me. So as a patient, you have to sign sign that. So there's a little, there's an additional step. But the the role for direct primary care for those who have Medicare is at least regionally, because our Medicare pricing isn't super high per se, is the care and the access and the help to manage the uh, chronic conditions that they're dealing with in a way that's not, uh, so to go a little bit off track. So my father-in-law was constantly being seen by an endocrinologist very frequently. He's got diabetes and he was seeing them and he's having great control of his A1Cs, but was following up like he should. But what he wasn't doing is he wasn't following up the primary care provider, but he, in his mind, was getting labs like he should every six months. Like, I'm good. I'm checked out. But what they weren't doing is they weren't screening for prostate cancer, which he had reached the age where they should start doing that, or at least discuss it with him, you know, and the pros and cons of it. So uh, he ends up signing up for our services and we, and we end up um, doing a blood test and it turns out he's got elevated blood tests. They do the biopsy and he's got prostate cancer and he's had to have it removed. You know, he's like, well, I had blood work done. I must've had that done. Well, you had it done five years ago. That was the last time that you had that test. And it was a shock to him. And how was he supposed to know? And so what I find is that it was just a telling story and he's, he'd be okay with me sharing this because he's shared it with others is that you know, you kind of don't know what you don't know. And when you're dealing with chronic conditions, even in the primary care world, you become very narrow-minded that this visit is just about diabetes, right? This isn't a preventive care visit. So I'm not going to talk to you about DEXA bone scans and mammograms and whatever. This is about diabetes is how we scheduled it. And that is hurting care at a time in your life when those things need to be controlled well. And you need kind of this holistic approach and oversight and direct primary care allows that. Not only does it allow that, but you still get to offer the same, you know, access to labs, discount medications. So depending on whether they have part D and G and F and Z or whatever, it still can be a really reasonable cost saving measure for them as well. I think the interesting part there to me as well is that if he goes, you know, the, your client goes to see a cardiologist, endocrinologist, a specialist, that specialist is still going to bill through Medicare, yeah. correct? Yeah. So they can still use their Absolutely. insurance right. for things that cost more money than, you know, a cheap generic medication or something like that. Right. Like, and then I think one of the more common complaints I hear with Medicare is that a lot of providers, they don't have room for more Medicare clients. So if you want to get a new provider within a system, it's going to take you three or four months to get your provider. Right. So again, they have better access right up front and then they can still have their Medicare for other costs. So it's kind of a unique little setup in my mind. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we're getting to the end of my, uh, we're getting to the end of our time here and- um, the most important questions, I think when we, when we talked before the show, I was like, man, we could, we could probably just keep going for a couple hours, but I think we'll, you know, yeah. give people enough information now mm -hmm. and just to let them know there is another option. And, um, we'll give you, we'll give them all your contact information at the end here, just in case they want to ask you more questions about your model and great. how to sign up. That'd be great. And then I'll, uh, I'll be emailing you later about 
level funded level. plans and <laughs> you know things yeah. like that. Awesome. So I like to wrap up the show uh, just with some fun stuff, and then uh, we'll give you your contact information. So do you mind if we launch into our rapid fire questions? Okay. Okay. These are the really important questions of the show. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. So first off, uh, either a favorite book or a good book you've read in the last month or so. Uh, last month, the book I'm enjoying is called uh, The Beekeeper's Bible, which is not a book about how to bees can be saved. Um, it's a book for beekeepers to learn how to you know take care of bees. So okay. I've been for like the long, I don't know, five years, I've been wanting to have hives and bees. I still don't have any, <laughs> Okay, but, but I'm reading the book about it. And so nice. hopefully this spring we'll uh, we'll own some bees and get some honey and they're awesome. fascinating. They just, they just intrigue me. So yeah. Bees are so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can just watch bees. I mean, honeybees, you know, not yeah. the other wasps and variations stuff. that aren't actually bees, yeah. flying predators. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. Have you connected with Jerry Tate yet? He's over like towards Millwood on Argonne and um, Tate's Honey Farm. Um, no, I haven't. Yeah. Super nice guy. Okay. Um, that's who we buy our honey from. We buy candles from him and then he has all of the equipment. Does he sell um, like, uh, what do they call them? Nooks or whatever, like bees where you can purchase a hive basically oh, yeah. from him? Oh, They'll okay. sell you a queen. Okay. You know, and then all of the gear and the racks and oh, sweet. super nice, passionate, loud guy. Okay. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Jerry Tate oh, is man. his name. So you're welcome, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Next question is uh favorite like food around the area or a favorite restaurant? I love Red Robin's uh, Blue Ribbon Burger. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. Just so good. Like the crisp of the onions and the blue cheese just is probably my go-to. Not fancy, but uh, so good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the burger I always used to get at is Red Robin, right? too. Yeah. yeah. It has like, doesn't have a barbecue sauce on there, too? Uh, and blue probably. cheese. And then yeah. onions, the crispy onions. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That or like Texas Roadhouse, they're... <laughs> You know how they give you those like bread rolls to begin with? I've Which, never been. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're like, I, I need to pick something healthier, I think. But <laughs> they, uh, their bread rolls are to me, they're like, this is really a Krispy Kreme donut. That's what they're giving you at yeah. first is a Krispy Kreme donut because it's so like soft and sugar and syrup, but it is, they, they're the best bread roll. I have a big sweet tooth if you can't tell, but. Yeah. You know, ages ago we, um. I used to go out like for lunch mainly to Beverly's with my parents oh, okay. and that's out of the Coeur d'Alene Resort Oh yeah, or Coeur d'Alene Hotel, sorry. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it's like seventh floor, super high-end restaurant. So like I never went there for dinner, but lunch was like reasonably priced. Yeah, yeah. And they had these orange rolls. So they had like orange, like frosting in the layers of the roll, oh, like wow. icing on top crazy man that sounds good yeah, yeah 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 you can tell we're really into health and nutrition <laughs> yeah <laughs> what do you mean you have diabetes all, all right, really, yeah yeah that could, texas roll that would never rolls. happen yeah <laughs> okay uh, next question for you then is how about a favorite activity uh, in our area i really like geocaching which is uh you know it's hunting for like boxes or little small i don't know yeah boxes that people have hid randomly around our area if you're not familiar with it is but it gets you outside it gets you hiking and my wife has never liked it she's like why would i go look for something i hate looking for things that are lost you know <laughs> like and uh, but my kids have they like doing it and it's like a treasure hunt for adults is what i figured out it's like it's um it's a treasure hunt for adults with a gps system and uh, it's just a really fun thing to go look for something mysterious and get a reason to go outside and go hiking. So oh, yeah. we like doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I've never done that, but it sounds fun. Like yeah. you said, just make a day of it and go, yeah. go exploring. Mm -hmm. The kids would love it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, geocaching. How about uh, last fun question for you here before we sign off? Um, something that you really want to do in the area, but you haven't quite gotten around to yet. I don't know with this one, probably because I just don't have a lot of ideas what there is to do. What's something I should do? I don't know. You've been like to the ski mountains or uh, Hiawatha Trail? Maybe? I haven't done that. Yeah. That, I would like to do that. I've never done the Hiawatha either. But um, I guess before you go, get some strategy from your friends who have gone. Yeah. Because if you do it the way that they have it set up, you could be waiting for the bus to take you back for like two hours oh. to back, you know, to where your car oh, is. Oh, yeah, to shuttle back? Yeah, I guess the trick is park your car at the bottom and shuttle up Oh, instead of parking your car at the top oh, and then totally. having to shuttle back. Oh, right. So if anyone knows that, you know, maybe check before you go. Oh, I'd but be totally that guy. I'd be like, oh, you gotta do that or bike back up. Yeah. Bike back up. It's yeah. only 16 miles. Oh, that's it. You know, or whatever. Okay. I think it's 16. Yeah. Well, I've heard like we have young kids. I'm like, I don't know if I want to, it's like all downhill. You know, that's what they say. I'm like my three-year-old is going to take off and like fall off a cliff if it's all downhill. But I hear it's like a really reasonable grade. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Like a mild grade. Although I haven't wanted to take my kids until they're like six. You know, my daughter is six. She's the youngest. So yeah. I need I some advice on that. Yeah. Be reasonable, I think. Yeah. As long as they can hit the brake. Yes. Be that'd yeah. be key. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's those dark train tunnels, I guess. Yes. So, well, great. Well, um, Matt, if people want to get in touch with you to either, you know, schedule an appointment or they want to learn more about your model and ask some questions, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? A uh, phone call would be a good way. So 509-553-0565. That's 509-553-0565. Or you can email me directly. My email is Matt with two Ts. Uh, D is in Dinsmore. So Matt D at mydpcclinic.com. Good, and then I will post all that in the show notes. So the phone number there, email, website. I highly encourage people just to look at look at it and see, you know, what your website actually is really well done. I don't know if that's um, great. Yeah, it was very clear um, in terms of what was covered and what your money got you, and yeah. it, it's all the all the details that we went over in terms of how long each appointment is. Everything was on there. Mm. So Great. I was I was impressed with that website. So good. Gosh, thank you for being on the show. This has yeah. been enlightening and I hope the listeners have gotten some value. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been, I mean, on air and off air, we've had some great conversations. I really felt a kindred spirit with kind of some of this stuff. So I appreciate the time here and, and just getting to know you. Yeah, thanks again. And then I think one of my longer term goals is to start thinking about this type of a model for a physical therapy access too. Yeah. Um, because again, I, you know, you tend to think, well, that's great for Matt. That's mm-hmm. working real well for him and his clients are doing great. But again, how could I, how could I apply this for our clients who, you know, would like to just have some baseline level of care. Sure. And again, it would change our uh, emphasis on, well, the more times we treat them, the more money we make to the more we can preventatively help them stay healthy. Yeah. It's better for them and it's better for us. And I think that's one of, I mean, probably my biggest key point from today. And my, my key takeaway was that you have to create a system that benefits all parties involved, mm-hmm. not just one party, not just the other one. And that I think is where, you know, I like to use that word synergy, yeah. that synergistic effect. If we can figure out solutions that benefit everybody involved, that's the that's the route. Right. So um, yeah, great insights today. And yeah, I really appreciate you being here. So well, good. Well, uh, again, everyone, thanks for listening to the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast. Um, I hope you found that uh, episode enjoyable and enlightening and at least made you think a little bit today. Uh, we'll be back in the next month or so with another podcast. I don't know what it is yet. But in the meantime, any questions you have for me, um, either on this show or just the show in general, my contact 
contact information is always down there, um, but it's just Luke, my first name, at gordonphysicaltherapy.com. So any questions you have or if you have feedback on the show, please let me know. Ideas for future episodes, things you want to know more about, you want me to dive into, that would be great too. And if you're listening on um, you know, iTunes or Google, whatever you're on, um, if you wouldn't mind giving us a quick review, just letting us know. Um, hopefully we can reach more people with the podcast and help people stay active and healthy and all those things that we value. So thank you for listening and I will be back next time. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast sponsored by Gordon Physical Therapy. To stay connected with the Stay Healthy Spokane community, visit www.stayhealthyspokane.com and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast.